You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, located in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. You can learn more about us by visiting oakhillfellowship.com or finding us on social media. Now grab a Bible, a notebook, and get ready to be spiritually enriched by the Word of God. You can open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and we are into week two of our study in the book of Ephesians uh, that we've called Beyond Imagination or Church Beyond Imagination. And we're going we're gonna to really just take this book section by section to see God's unimaginable vision for his church so that we can pursue that vision and give him much glory. And so the, the title of these sermons are going to really fill in that blank that happens before imagination. Last week, we uh, talked about church, imag- church beyond imagination because we uh, see that as the theme of the whole book. By the way, I'm trying to talk and find a place in my Bible at the exact same time, and so that's like really something. Um, I just keep turning pages. There we go. Uh, really, church beyond imagination is the theme of the whole book. It's the theme of our whole series, uh, but then... Um, how that plays out, we're going to look at in each different section throughout the series. And so the, the title of today's sermon is Blessings Beyond Imagination. Blessings Beyond Imagination. And I want you to write down the answer to two important questions. Uh, I know that some of you don't always like to write these things down. I would encourage you. This is a good mental exercise if you actually like write some things down in that way. And so the two questions are this. Are you blessed? And then secondly, how do you know? Are you blessed? And how do you know? Now, I think many of us would answer that first question with a yes, because we just know that we should. We know that we should understand that we are blessed. It would be impolite or sound like we were complaining if we said, no, I'm not blessed. We're, we know that we have it better than some people or a lot of people, whatever that means. And so most of us would say, yes, yes, we're blessed. Now, if I were to ask you, do you feel blessed? That, that might change the, the question and the answer a little bit, right? Like, like some people are like, they just never don't feel blessed. They're just like, yeah, I'm, I'm blessed today. I'm, I'm blessed. I'm better than I deserve. And, you know, you just have these, like, eternal optimists, right? Or you have people then who are a little bit more of a melancholy temperament like me uh, who, like, can't see the sun if there's a cloud in the sky. And, and so you, you kind of have the different ways that people feel about those things. But that wasn't the question. The question is, are you blessed? Which is why we have to then press into the next question. Uh, how do you no. How do you know? And this is where it gets kind of interesting, because we might answer yes to the first question, even though we don't feel like we're blessed at our moment, but then we're going to point to, often, temporal, visible, physical reasons to prove that we are blessed, right? So we'll say things like, at least I have my family, or at least I have a roof over my head, or at least I have food on my table, or at least I have a job, right? Have you ever answered in those ways? And they're not wrong, right? They're, they're not, I mean, those things are blessings from the Lord, right? But, but notice 
Notice the word that keeps popping up in the front of that, right? At least. At least. And it proves that we have a rather scant view of blessing when we view it in that way. Yes, God has blessed me, but he really could bless me more. He's blessed me in the least way possible. Not only that, but when we point to temporal or physical blessings, we reveal where our minds are set. We reveal the realm to which our hearts are bound. We reveal where we find our identity and that it is in earthly things. But what happens if all those things were taken away? Like, think about Job, right? There was a couple people this week where I was like, man, they're going through a Job moment. What happens when our job isn't what we hoped it would be? Or when conflict starts to tear apart our family? What does it mean for the person who doesn't have some of those so-called tangible blessings that we pointed to? Can they still be blessed? I think you know where I'm going with this. Of course they can. Because the greatest blessings that we could possibly receive are not things that can be touched with human hands or seen with human eyes. The greatest blessings we can receive do not come to us from the earthly realm. They find their home in the heavenly places. And if we root our identity in Christ, we will be overwhelmed by the blessings that we have been given in Him. And we will consider ourselves, above all things, blessed in Christ. And we will know that this was all of grace so that we could only possibly give God all the glory because of it. And so here's where we're going today. Uh, big idea for the day is give God glory by looking beyond what is seen to the unimaginable blessings that we have in Christ. Give God glory by looking beyond what is seen to the unimaginable blessings that we have in Christ. Now, we're going to talk about this a lot. If you are not in Christ, then All that you have to point to if you've been blessed is those physical, temporal things. But they will fade. They will fall. Like I said in my prayer, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And so if we put our faith in the word of the Lord and what he has revealed, then our blessings can be beyond imagination. If not, they're going to die with us. And if we are going to be the church that God calls us to be, we're going to have to cling to spiritual blessings. We're going to have to cling to the spiritual provisions and benefits that are given to us in Christ. This week, we're really honed in on the first main goal for this series and for this fall as a church, that we would allow our identity in Christ to define our day-to-day experience. This is not just high and lofty, heavenly-minded things that don't affect the way that we live our lives. This is everything to us, and we're going to see that today. When we use those words, identity in Christ, at least in more theologically conservative circles, we're we're talking about these two very important words that show up all over the New Testament, that true believers are in Christ. They're in Christ. 
And those words in Christ or in him show up all over our passage in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14 today. Just to give you some context or remind you of the context, the Apostle Paul is writing from imprisonment, likely in Rome. He's under house arrest, chained to a, a Roman guard, not exactly a situation that most of us would look at and say, he is blessed. And he's writing to the churches in Ephesus and the surrounding regions, and he wants them to know that their blessing is not tied to their physical, earthly circumstances. His blessing is not limited by the short length of his chain as he's in prison. The blessing of God extends to the furthest reaches of the heavenly places because it is in Christ. And that is for the purpose of God getting much glory through them as they unite together as Christ's blessed body, his church. And so read with me in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now that's a lot to take in, isn't it? And just be thankful that the translators decided to put some periods and commas in there for you. Because in the Greek, it's just one long sentence Without any punctuation. It's kind of like some of you write texts, right? Like that's, that's kind of how you write a text message, right? And, and so this is one thought that is incredibly rich in Paul's mind. And so I went back and forth for a long time about how long to spend in this section. Should it be one sermon, two sermons, three sermons, 25 sermons like the venerable Dr. Lloyd-Jones did for his church? Most preachers spend quite a long time on that because there's a lot in there and there's a lot of things that people get confused about and like to debate and like election and predestination and all these sorts of things. But here's my concern when we do that. If Paul wrote this all in one sentence, that means that the author's intent, which is very important to us, was for the churches in and around Ephesus and then everyone who would read this after to Take this all in at one time. 
possibly in just a few readings. He wasn't writing so they could have something to debate about for the centuries. He was writing so that they would be overwhelmed by the blessings that they have in Christ. And so I had, had landed on one sermon. And then I got to studying and writing this week and actually like got through the first point and it was like 5,000 words and I'm like, yeah, that's not going to work. So I thought, I got to stop being crazy. I got to stop trying to cram everything in. And this is way more than one sermon worth to explain. So here's where I landed. It's going to be one two-part sermon this week and next week, Lord willing, right? Like, you know, we're not going to take as long as some preachers have. Martin Lloyd-Jones can go for 25. He's awesome, right? But we won't be as short as I was going to be. And in the end, I hope that the effect is that you would see the wonder of the whole of what is captured here. And that we would not get lost in the trees so that we lose sight of the beauty of the forest. If we're following along in our reading plan this week, Lord willing, I'm going to uh, send you some more questions so that you can just go deeper into study. Um, if you didn't get all the questions done last week, guess what? You got an extra, uh, extra week to do that, right? But we won't dive into next week three next week. And so today, uh, we're going to work our way through verses 3 through 6, and we're going to cover uh, 7 to 14 next week, again, Lord willing. And, and, and Paul starts his long sentence in verse 3 by kind of laying out the main topic of what he's addressing in this whole thing. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So there's a few things that I want you to notice about that first verse because it sets the course of everything that we're going to study in the next two weeks. So first of all, I want you to notice uh, what is Paul's purpose in writing this rich and theological and yet controversial sometimes sentence? His purpose is that God would be blessed. That word, when we use it towards God, means to praise him, to bestow honor upon him, to give him delight in our praise. And Paul's concern in, in talking about these blessings in Christ Jesus isn't so that we would feel all warm and fuzzy inside ourselves. It isn't so that we would make much of ourselves and look at, and look at ourselves and say, look how amazing I must be for God to choose me. I don't get it, but he must really think I'm awesome. No. The purpose is, look how awesome God is in his matchless grace. Blessed be his name. All praise and honor belongs to him. In fact, at three critical points throughout this long sentence, at each transition point, Paul is going to call our attention back to this blessed be idea by saying something like this, to the praise of his glory. He wants us to remember that the point of any blessing that we have received from God is that we would turn around and bless him. Second, I want you to notice, and you should be looking down in your Bibles here, that this blessing, this praise is given to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we would call Trinitarian language, recognizing that we serve one God who exists eternally is in three persons two of whom are mentioned here in this verse. The third is mentioned later in verses 13 and 14. And so those 
three persons of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, are going to be featured in different ways throughout the whole passage. Paul organizes his thoughts around the work of each person of the Trinity. Third, I want you to notice that these blessings are described as coming from the Father to us in Christ. In Christ. And we talked about these words a little bit last week. I want to go into it a little bit more this week. Uh, These are quite possibly the two most important words in the entire New Testament because they govern the entire Christian existence. The Bible says that when we truly believe in Jesus Christ for our salvation, when we put our faith in him, what we are doing is we are being united to Christ. We are being found in Christ. Biblical belief, saving faith, is not just knowing or thinking that something is true, but rather it is the transfer of our allegiance, of our identity, of our trust, of our hope and confidence to the object of our belief. So when we believe in Christ, we we forsake our allegiance to anything else or anyone else. We stop looking for our identity and our blessing in what we do or what we've achieved or in our relationships with other people or their approval of us. We forsake all else and we find our identity in Christ. In the promised, anointed Savior The Bible gives us a number of pictures to capture this. John 15 says that we are attached to Jesus and abide in Christ as the branches are attached to a vine. Jesus is the vine that gives us nourishment of eternal life. Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 describes this like putting on clothing. We are clothed in the new self that's made after the image of Christ so that his righteousness becomes our righteousness, his position become, before God becomes our position before God, and then his practice increasingly is reflected in our walk. Ephesians uses the imagery of the body. We are in Christ just like your hand or your foot or your eyeball is in your body. Most of all, Paul's letters use this imagery of of baptism being brought from death to life. And so when we're in Christ, our lives have died with him and we are drowned underwater and we are raised with him and his resurrection power now defines us. You get it yet? Let me illustrate this for you this way. I want you to imagine that this uh, sponge represents you. It represents me, okay? And so the air around the sponge uh, represents the default state of every person in, uh, who is apart from Christ. We're going to call this being in the flesh, Okay? In the flesh. And so, what is the relationship between this sponge and its current environment of the air around it? Well, we could say that the air has dried it out. 
It, in fact, the air is filling all of the pores of the sponge so that if I squeeze the sponge, they immediately fill back up with air. The air is defining its shape and even its usefulness. Like nobody goes to a dry sponge to wash the windows, right? And it's in our, this is us in our natural born state. We are in the flesh. We are dried out, dead and lifeless, filled with sin and fleshly desires, defined by those things, virtually useless for our intended created purpose. Now this uh, clear bowl of colored water represents Christ. And Jesus became man and he took on flesh and blood and he shed his blood so that our sins could be paid for and so that we could be restored to the image of our creator. That's the purpose for which we are created. And so when God awakens our hearts and, and we put our faith in Christ, here's what happens. I tried, I tried to weigh this thing down, but it, it didn't really. We become fully immersed in Christ. You're not just saying in that moment, I believe that the water exists. I believe that Jesus died and rose again. And then you go on living in the flesh. No, no. You immerse yourself in the person and work of Christ. By faith, you transfer your allegiance and your identity from the flesh to Christ. You are no longer in the flesh. You are in Christ. And now, so what is happening as I, I plunge this sponge down into the water? It is fully submerged. It is fully saturated. I, I can see the sponge, but I only see it through the filter of the colored water, right? And, not to push this too far, but if the sponge had eyeballs and was able to look out at all of us, it is also seeing everything else through the filter of that water. Listen, that's what it means to be in Christ. First of all, you are no longer regarded according to the flesh. You are no longer seen as fleshly. You are immersed in Christ, which means that God sees you through him. And then you see the world around you also through that lens of Christ. He changes your view of reality. And finally, Christ is filling up every part of you. He is fundamentally changing who you are, your nature, so that your life bears his image. So here, uh, the analogy is going to break down a little bit, right? But if I take this out, we can never leave Christ, right? But if I take this out just for examination's sake, the, the red water is, is filling all of the pores. It's actually changing the color of the sponge. It's changing the texture of the sponge. Not that you would wash your windows or your car with red water, but, but this is a whole lot more useful than the dry, lifeless sponge, right? Your fundamental identity has changed. That's union with Christ. And so God the Father has united us to his Son through faith. And he has blessed us 
in Christ. Why? Because Christ is the one who deserves all the blessings. He is the one who earned them and received them first. He is the one who can't do anything to mess them up. And we are in him. Praise the Lord. Every single blessing that Christ deserves is given to Christ, which is the fourth thing that I want you to notice about these blessings. First was that the point of the passage is praise to, the, to God. Second, that we are praising a trinity or triune God. The third is that blessings come to us in Christ. The fourth is that every spiritual blessing is given to us in Christ. There is not a spiritual blessing that God could give you that he isn't giving you. God is not holding out on you. He's not waiting until you perform better before he gives you some of the blessings. Christ has already done the work to secure every spiritual blessing for you. And that's why we can't have this poverty mentality when it comes to God's blessing. Sometimes we act like, like God is some mean dictator living in heaven with arms crossed, withholding blessings until we get ourselves better. But that's just not the case. We just need to open our eyes and see them and access them and, and by faith receive the full privileges of them. God in his grace is lavishing every spiritual blessing upon us. Peter has written in 2 Peter that God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. There is not one thing that would benefit your life in Christ. Not one thing that God has not given you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you need nothing than what has already been given? Notice this, the blessings come to us in Christ. They are in the heavenly places. Like, what's up with that? Like, does that mean that I have to wait till I get to heaven to experience the blessings of Christ? And the answer is yes and no, actually. So the blessings of God will be experienced most fully, most tangibly when we are in the physical presence of Christ in the new heavens and in the new earth for all of eternity. But because these are spiritual blessings, they are dependent upon our spiritual position, not upon our physical position. And our spiritual position is that we are in the heavenly places in Christ right now. Let me show this to you in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. It's up on the screen for you. You can look at it in your own Bibles if you want. Paul writes, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Where is Christ right now? In the heavenly places. Where are you right now? In the heavenly places. We talked about this last week, that our experience of salvation and our experience of the church is not limited to what we can see. So at this moment, 
Those of us who have put our faith in Christ Jesus are not merely sitting in a building at 902 Winter Hill Road. We are gathered around the throne of God, not just in our imagination. It's not just something that we're making up. This is our spiritual reality. And when we leave this place and we scatter throughout the week, we remain in the heavenly places to enjoy all of the blessings that Christ has for us. There's more to this than what we can see. And so these blessings have been given to us now, and they are experienced in a real but spiritual way. It's only given to those who are spiritual. These are not blessings that we can necessarily feel emotionally. They're not blessings that we can necessarily perceive with our five senses. They belong to another realm. And they are blessings that we can only access through faith because they are experienced through our union with Christ in the heavenly places. That's why I say if you are here and you have faith in Christ, you are seated in the heavenly places. We are gathered around the throne. If you are here and you have not transferred your allegiance to Christ, if you've just known about him, and you're like, yeah, the water exists, but you've not immersed yourself in him, then you're not in the heavenly places. And I would invite you, you can be. Turn from your sin and believe in him. Let me just pause here and say, that's why it's so important to distinguish between what we see and what we feel and what is real in any given moment because we can so easily forget all of the blessings that we have in Christ. We can so easily forget our position, our identity in Christ. So when I'm feeling depressed and I start to think, I'm a failure, everyone hates me. I'm feeling depressed. It's what I feel in my flesh that's talking, right? It's what I'm seeing in my what I can see in my identity that's talking. But what is real is that I am in Christ, that I am seated in the heavenly places, that I'm loved beyond imagination by a father who is infinitely more perfect in his love than anyone could possibly be, that I have a purpose to glorify God and that I have been given every spiritual blessing imaginable in order to accomplish that purpose. What is real is that God is working all things together for the, his glory and the good of those who love him. What is real is that Jesus is on the throne and in the heavenly places. And that I am in him. We have to know who we are in Christ. We have to distinguish between what we feel and what is real. Take another example. Uh, maybe you're angry about all the injustices that you see in the world. And, and you are being, you're feeding your heart with all of the things that are going wrong around you. And you think the world is going to hell in a handbasket. And that all hope is lost for our generation and the next generation. And you feel anger and hopelessness at that. You're not necessarily wrong that the world is going to hell in a handbasket. We were told that a long time ago. But what is real is that God is working all things together for his purpose. What is real is that because Jesus is king, 
He's moving everything around, even the rulers and authorities in this world, to accomplish his plan so that people will be saved by him, enter his kingdom, and enjoy his kingdom for all eternity. That's what he's going for. So don't get all worked up about all the stuff that everybody else is getting worked up because we have something else to see. When your feelings start pulling your heart away from faith in Christ, away from the fruit of the Spirit, away from hope and love, remind yourself of what is real. There's something bigger going on. Immerse yourself in your identity in Christ. Being in Christ changes everything because in Christ we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places so that we might bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just take a moment right now in your heart and bless him. In your your mind, just praise him. Because if you really dwell on these truths, they will blow your mind. Just go ahead right now. I'm just going to be quiet for a second so you can do that. Praise him. That every spiritual blessing comes in Christ. That's the topic. That's where Paul starts his sentence in verse 3, but we got a long way to go. And so Paul transitions to the rest of the sentence with these words, even as. He wants us to go deeper into the wonder of the identity that we have in Christ. He wants us to understand what the blessings are that we have in Christ and how we happen to come into them. And so Paul transitions to this section where he both describes the blessings and the way that we attain the blessings in one breath. Election and adoption and redemption and forgiveness and all these other things are both blessings in and of themselves, and they are the way that we experience and receive every blessing that comes to us in Christ. Now, like I said before, Paul organizes this extremely long sentence in a couple of different ways. Uh, First, and I I didn't mention this one before, he follows a rough timeline of things. He talks about God's work in eternity past, and then he carries that through the present and into eternity future. Second, he talks about the work of each distinct person of the Trinity. He, he flows right from the work of the Father into the work of the Son and then into the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and there's overlap, but there is a clear flow in the passage. And so then he concludes the description of each Trinitarian person's work with some form of the words, to the praise of his glory. And so if you, as we're following along, that's how we're going to structure this week and Next week, the purpose of the section is that God would receive much glory as he blesses believers in Christ. So Paul starts in eternity past with the work of the Father. And that's really all the further that we're going to go today, point one. But look at verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in, with Christ in every, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Here we go. Even as he chose us in him, that's Christ, Father chose us in 
Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he, the Father, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. So both the blessing and the means by which we receive that blessing is, first of all, the gracious election of God. The gracious election of God. So praise the Father for the blessing of gracious election. Praise the Father for the blessing of gracious election. Now, this is the part that everyone loves to debate, isn't it? Like, this is where people lose their minds. Choose... How could a loving God choose some people and not others? Doesn't election, choosing, mean that humans aren't responsible for their choices? Doesn't it negate human free will as if that was the most important thing that we would want to hold on to? And if God has already chosen sovereignly, what does it matter how we live? Why should we pray? Why should we evangelize? And and those are all valid questions. Don't, Don't hear me writing them off necessarily. But they all share the same major problem. They all have people at the center. They all start with human wisdom and human logic. And Paul's whole point is to show the glory of God who is alone to be praised forever and ever. And so don't we think that maybe that God understands some things that we don't? And maybe we should let him do the talking instead of twisting his words around in some way that seems logical to us. Paul's whole point is to show that the reason and the timing and the idea and the prerogative and the grace of salvation all belongs to God so that all praise and glory and honor go to him. And so we must start not with human logic, but with the way that God has actually revealed this to us, with the words of Scripture that have concrete meaning that were inspired by the Holy Spirit himself. And so two words govern this section of the Father's work. He, he chose us, and he predestined us. These are not the same, but they do work together. First, Paul says that the Father chose us. That that word means a decisive action to pick something or someone for yourself. So one might go to the store and choose a shirt to buy. Or someone might choose a husband or wife to marry. But here's the thing with the way that we as humans tend to look at choice in our own logic. We make choices based on a certain quality that we see in that thing, right? Our choices are dependent on and influenced by factors outside of ourselves. So I choose a shirt to wear because I like the style. Like, I don't. Whatever. I choose my wife because I think she's beautiful and unique and interesting and all sorts of other things. There was something in her that made her stand out to me. She influenced my choice, right? 
But we serve a God who is self-existent, unlike us. We serve a God who is not dependent upon other factors to make a choice. God is the only person in the universe, heaven and on earth, who is not dependent upon anything else. He is not swayed or influenced by factors outside of himself. And so for God to choose does not imply that he liked some people and didn't like others, and that's why he chose. It does not imply some quality in the people that he chose that doesn't exist in others. In fact, the Greek word for choose really tells us nothing about why God chose one person instead of another. Simply that he did. Simply that he did. And the Bible is clear that God did not choose for himself a people because he saw anything unique in us or because he looked down the corridors of time and saw that we would have some response of faith or that we would make good Christians, that, that he could use us more than others or something like that. No, that would make God dependent upon us and therefore that would make God less than God. God's choice says more about him than it does anything about the object of his choosing because he chose us in Christ, right? That is, he chose us in connection to the person and work of his son. Apart from Christ's ultimate sacrifice of our sin, for our sin, God would choose no one. We are all enemies of God. We all start out as children of wrath. Not one of us wanted him. Not one of us was righteous. Every one of us rejected God in our sin. You want to talk about free will? This is where free will leads every time. It, it taints everything that we do apart from Christ. It leads us to sin every time. And I, I know you feel that in your heart, right? Like my, my sin is so pervasive that if I make a choice, I'm making it for myself. Except that Christ would lead me and guide me by his Holy Spirit and change me and transform me from the inside out. And therefore, God chose us based upon the work that Christ would do for us and in us, not based upon the work that we would do for him or the faith that we would put in him. We don't know why he chose us in particular. God in his wisdom did not reveal that except that in his choosing, somehow his grace would be made more evident, which would bring him more glory. But here's what's really crazy. Paul says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That is, before he created anything, before mankind even ever fell into sin and became fully deserving of his just wrath by their own will. Long before you and I ever drew a breath, God had a plan to rescue a chosen people for himself. God had a plan in Christ. His plan all along was to send his son to die for the sins of his people and magnify his grace. 
His plan was not a reaction to our sin, as if Adam and Eve ate the fruit and God said, well, I didn't see that one coming. Now what do I do? His predetermined choice before he ever created one molecule was to choose a people for himself in Christ who would be redeemed from sin as objects of his grace. His predetermined choice is that as we would see at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21, that, that he would have a people redeemed for sin, from sin who would live forever with him in a new Eden, in the new heavens and the new earth. He chose it because that's what would demonstrate his glorious grace the most. Now, notice the result of his choosing. Notice the aim or the, the target of his choosing he chose us that we would be holy and blameless before him. So if you are chosen, you are chosen to be holy and blameless. Some people argue against election or sovereign choosing by saying, well, that, I guess that just means you can live like hell and still go to heaven. No, no, he chose us. And he chose us to be holy and blameless. The result of his choosing is holiness and blamelessness, both positionally and practically. Other people ask, well, how do I know if I'm chosen then? If this is all of God's choosing, how do I know? How do I know I'm not going to be left out? And we would answer that question with another question. Do you have faith in Christ that has surrendered your life to his will, that has immersed yourself in him, that's so that increasingly your life starts looking like his holy and blameless life permeated in every way with his holiness. If so, then you were chosen. And look backwards and say, oh, I didn't know I was chosen, but I am. And if not, and here's the invitation to you. Turn to him in faith away. God, faith today. God will not reject anyone who truly chooses to turn to him. He will not do it. He has promised that he will not do it. The Bible calls you to repent of your sin and trust in Christ. And maybe God is using this moment and, and hearing of what God has done in Christ and what God has done in salvation to bless his people. Maybe he's using that today to produce an awakened faith in your heart. And so if he is, do not harden your heart. Forsake all else and turn to Christ. And if you turn to Christ, then you can look back and say, I was chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Amazing, I didn't even know it. Listen, this doctrine has been made so confusing because we just approach it with human logic and from this human perspective. And we want to make it this either or of God is sovereign or we have responsibility. But God's word is clear. God is sovereign. He chooses and we have responsibility to repent and believe in him. And when we do, we can rest assured that our salvation does not depend on our faith, but upon God who chose us in Christ before the foundation.
The doctrine of election was given to us by divine wisdom, not so that we could be confused, not so that we would be worried, not so that we could argue about it, but simply so that we could worship. And so the question remains, then, was his choosing sure? How how can I know that his choosing had an effect? How can I know that I will remain in Christ till the end so that I can worship him forever? Could God choose us for salvation and that that salvation not come to pass? That's what's covered in the next word, predestined. Predestined. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. First, let me say that there's a lot of debates around the word in love. Does it belong to the idea of predestination? Does it belong to the idea of being holy and blameless? Listen, I don't have any time or desire to go into that, so let's just say this. God loves those whom he chooses to be holy and blameless and those who he has predestined. Can we just be satisfied in that? Like, reading so much this week, I get so tired of like, he loves us! Be happy! (laughs) We just like enjoy the love of God. His love is far beyond any human love that you have ever seen. It is based entirely on his own character. And if you were to ask the question, why does he love me? The only answer that the Bible gives is because he loves you. Because he is love. But why? Because he loves you. But why? Because he loves you. His love is just like his choosing. It is rooted in him, not you. And so is this word predestined. It means that he determined your destiny beforehand. It does not mean that he knew of your destiny beforehand. It does not mean that he responded to something in us that he knew would come to pass. No, it means that he determined the boundaries of everything in creation so that those whom he chose, the whole people of them, would become his people. Simply put, it means that he foreordained. It was his good pleasure to work all things according to the purpose of his will. Every moment of history working out exactly as he planned it so that the person who evangelized you would hear it from somebody else, would hear it from somebody else, would hear it from somebody else, all the way back to Adam and Eve. That's what it means for him to have predestined us. So that through his glorious grace, a certain people will be called out of death and into life. So that they would be adopted as sons through Christ Jesus. We are predestined to something. From something and to something. And here it is to adoption. Now the idea of adoption is super important. It means that God planned for and initiated a certain type of relationship with us, one in which we would be his children and he would be our father. Now Paul specifically says that we are predestined to adoption as sons. And that word sons is less about gender 
and more about the privileges afforded to adopted sons in Roman culture. So Paul is not excluding women here, by the way. He's just saying that men and women have the full privilege together of sonship through Christ. They become heirs of God in Christ. And that theme of heirs or inheritance will come up again in in the study that we're going to do next week. Because Jesus is God's son and we are in him, then we can be adopted as sons and receive the full rights and privileges of his blessing. And this was all then through grace that he has blessed us with in the beloved. That word beloved refers to Christ. The father loves the son more than any other person or being in the entire universe. And we are in the Son. We are in Christ, which means that he is showering on us all of the love that he has for the Son. All of the grace, all of the favor, all of the blessing that would belong to his Son belongs to us. And so here's the bottom line. God chose us that we would be holy and blameless. He predestined us to adoption as sons. And I want you to understand that these are unshakable truths. This was all decided before the foundation of the earth. It was all being sovereignly worked out in time and space. This is a blessing that is kept for us in the heavenly places. The circumstances and trials and feelings of our flesh cannot change the fact that this is true. And so what does it mean for us this week? What does it mean as we look at the world through this lens of being in Christ? I like what Alistair Begg said of these verses. He said that these truths produce in us three things. Humility, dignity, and security. Humility, dignity, and security. First, they produce humility in us because our salvation was all of God. We can't even understand it, let alone achieve it. Second, they produce dignity. We are not defined by our sin. We are not defined by being in the flesh. We are defined by being in Christ if we have put our faith in him. We are sons of God. We are heirs of Christ. Our identity is in Christ. And third, they produce security. Security. If my salvation was accomplished all apart from me, then guess what? I can't mess it up. Not that I go on sinning that grace may abound, but rather I become holy and blameless and I can actually achieve that goal because I can't fail at it. I'm in Christ. And I keep pursuing faith in him and going back to him as the source of power in my life. And because of this blessing of gracious election, I can have humility, dignity, and security and I can praise God for his glorious grace. He's done it all. He gets all the praise. The natural response of the believer to this passage is not to to cross our arms and say, choosing, predestination, election. That doesn't make any sense to me. How dare God take away my free will? response to this verse is praise the Father 
for his glorious work of election. There is none like him. So I want us to go to prayer right now. Just you and the Father right now. I want you to spend some time adoring God as the only sovereign God who has chosen a people for himself. Praise him for his plan. Praise him for his choosing. Praise him for his creating. Praise him for his saving. Praise him for being the perfect heavenly father. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.